This is section twelve of Little Journeys to the Homes of Famous Women. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne Vodorf. Rosa Bonner, Part Two. The sun's rays were growing warmer. I took off my coat and tucked it through the handle of the basket. White Pigeon took off her jacket to keep it company, and toting the basket, slung on my cane between us, we moved on up the gently winding way to the village of B. Everyone was asleep at B, or else gone on a journey. Soon we were come to the old, massive, moss-covered gate-posts that marked the entrance to the mansion. A chain was stretched across the entrance, and we crawled under. The driveway was partly overgrown with grass, and the place seemed to be taking care of itself. Half a dozen long-horned, bonny briar-bush cows were grazing on the lawn, their calves with them, and evidently these cows and calves were the only mowing machines employed. On this wide-stretching meadow were various old trees. One elm I saw had fallen, split through the center, each part prostrate, yet growing green. Close up about the house there was an irregular stone wall and an ornamental iron gate with a pull-out Brugglesmith bell at one side. We pulled the bell, and were answered by a big shaggy St. Bernard that came barking and bouncing around the corner. I thought at first our time had come, but this giant of a dog only approached within about ten feet, then lay down on the grass and rolled over three times to show his good will. He got up with a fine cheery smile shown in the wag of his tail, just as a little maid unlocked the gate. Don't you know that dog? asked White Pigeon. Certainement. He is on the wall of your room. We were shown into a little reception parlor, where we were welcomed by a tall, handsome woman, about White Pigeon's age. The woman kissed White Pigeon on one cheek, and I afterwards asked White Pigeon why she didn't turn to me the other, and she said I was a fool. Then the tall woman went to the door and called up the stairs. Anton, Anton, guess who it is? It's White Pigeon. A man came down the stairs three steps at a time, and took both of White Pigeon's hands in his, after the hearty manner of a gentleman in France. Then I was introduced. Antoine looked at our lunch basket with the funniest look I ever saw, and asked what it was. Lunch, said White Pigeon. I cannot tell a lie. Antoine made wild gesticulations of displeasure, denouncing us in pantomime, but White Pigeon explained that we only came on a quiet picnic in search of ozone, and had dropped in to make a little call before we went up to the forest. But could we see the horses? Antoine would be most delighted to show Monsieur Little Journeys anything that was within his power. In fact, everything hereabouts was the absolute property of Monsieur Little Journeys to do with as he pleased. He disappeared up the stairway to exchange his slippers for shoes, and the tall woman went in another direction for her hat. I whispered to White Pigeon, Can't we see the studio? Are we from Chicago that we should seek to prowl through a private house where the mistress is away? No. There are partly finished canvases up there that are sacred. Come this way, said Anton. He led us through the library, through the dining room, and through the kitchen. It is a very comfortable old place with no extra furniture. The French know better than to burden themselves with things. The long line of thick stables seemed made up of a beggarly array of empty stalls. We stopped at a paddock, and Antoine opened the gate and said, There they are. What? The horses. But these are broncos. Yes, I believe that is what you call them. Monsieur Bill of Buffalo, New York, sent them as a present to Madame Rosalie when he was in Paris. There they were, two eunuched cayuses, one a pinto with a wall eye. 
the other had done with a black line down the back. I challenged Antoine to saddle them, and we would ride. The tall lady took it in dead earnest, and throwing her arms around Antoine's neck, begged him not to commit suicide. And the Percherons, where are they? Goodness, we have no perches. Those that served as models for the horse fair, I mean. White Pigeon took me gently by the sleeve, and turning to the others, apologized for my ignorance, explaining that I did not know the Marchand au Chevet was painted over forty years ago, and that the models were all Paris cart horses. Antoine called up a little old man, who led out two shaggy little cobs, and I was told that these were the horses that Madame drove. A roomy old-fashioned basket phaeton was backed out. White Pigeon and I stepped in to try it, and Antoine drew us once around the stable-yard. This is the only carriage Madame uses. There were doves and chickens and turkeys and rabbits, and these horses we had seen, with the cows on the lawn, make up all the animals owned by the greatest of living animal painters. Years ago Rosa Bonner had a stable full of horses and a kennel of dogs and a park with white deer. Many animals were sent as presents. One man forwarded a lion, and another a brace of tigers, but Madame made haste to present them to the zoological garden at Paris, because the people at B would not venture out of their houses, a report having been spread that the lions were loose. An animal painter no more wants to own the objects he paints than a landscape artist wishes a deed for the mountain he is sketching, said Antoine. Or to marry his model, interposed White Pigeon. If you see your model too often you will lose her, added the tall lady. We bid our friends good-bye, and trudged on up the hillside to the storied forest of Fontainebleau. We sat down on a log and watched the winding sin, stretching away like a monstrous serpent, away down across the meadow. Just at our feet was the white village of B. Beyond was Thumeray, and off to the left rose the spires of Fontainebleau. And who is this Anton, and who is the tall lady? I asked as White Pigeon began to unpack the basket. It's quite a romance. Are you sure you want to hear it? I must hear it. And so between bites White Pigeon told me the story. The tall lady is a niece of Madame Rosalie's. She was married to an army officer at Bordeaux when she was sixteen years old. Her husband treated her shamefully. He beat her and forced her to write begging letters and to borrow money of her relatives. And then he would take the money and waste it gambling and in drink. In short, he was a brute. Madame Rosalie accidentally heard of all this, and one day went down to Bordeaux and took the tall lady away from the brute, and told him she would kill him if he followed. Did she paint a picture of the brute? Keep quiet, please. She told him she would kill him if he followed. And although she is usually very gentle, I believe she would have kept her word. Well, she brought the tall lady with her to be, and the old woman and this young woman loved each other very much. Now Madame Rosalie had a butler and a combination man of business, by names of Jules Carmon. He was a painter of some ability, and served Madame in many ways, right faithfully. Jules loved the tall lady, or said he did, but she did not care for him. He was near fifty and asthmatic, and had watery eyes. He made things very uncomfortable for the tall lady. One night Jules came to Madame Rosalie in great indignation and said he could not consent to remain longer on account of the way things were going on. What was the trouble? Trouble enough, when the tall lady was sneaking out of the house after decent folks were in bed, to meet a strange man down in the evergreens. Well, I guess so. How did he know? Ah, he had followed her. Moreover, he had concealed himself in the evergreens and waited for them to make sure. Yes, and who was the man? A young rogue of a painter from Fontainebleau named Antoine de Chanaville. 
Madame Rosalie took James Carmon at his word. She said she was very sorry he could not stay, but he might go if he wished to, of course, and she paid him his salary on the spot, with two months more to the end of the year. The next day Madame Rosalie drove her team of shaggy ponies down to Fontainebleau and called on the young rogue of an artist. He came out bareheaded and quaking to where she sat in the phaeton waiting. She flicked the off-pony twice and told him that as Carmon had left her, she must have a man to help her. Would he come? And she named as salary a sum, about five times what he was then making. Antoine de Chanaville seized the will of the phaeton for support gasped several gasps and said he would come he was getting barely enough to eat out of his work anyway although he was a very worthy young fellow and he came he and the tall lady were married about six months after and about the brute and and the divorce gracious goodness how do i know i guess the brute died or something anyway anton and the tall lady are man and wife and are devoted lovers besides they have served Madame Rosalie most loyally for these fifteen years. They say Madame Rosalie has made her will, and has left the mansion and everything in it for their ownest own, with a tidy sum besides to put on interest. It was four o'clock when we got back to the railway station at Fontainebleau. We missed the train we expected to take, and had an hour to wait. White Pigeon said she did not care so very much, and I'm sure I didn't. So we sat down in the bright little waiting room, and White Pigeon told me many things about Madame Rosalie and her early life that I had never known before. Early in the century there lived in Bordeaux a struggling artist, artists always struggle, you know, by the name of Edmund Bonner. He found life a cruel thing, for bread was high in price and short in weight, and no one seemed to appreciate art except the folks who had no money to buy. But the poor can love as well as the rich, and Raymond married. In his nervous desire for success, Raymond Bonnar said, if he could only have a son, he would teach him how to do it, and the son would achieve the honors that the world withheld from the father. So the days came and went, and a son was expected, a firstborn, an heir. There wasn't anything to be heir to, except genius, but there was plenty of that. The heir was to bear the name of the father, Raymond Bonnar. Prayers were offered and thanksgivings sung. The day was fulfilled. The child was born. The heir was a girl. Raymond Bonheur cursed wildly and tousled his hair like a buffet artist. He swore he had been tricked, trapped, seduced, undone. He would have bought strong drink, but he had no money and credit like hope was gone. The little mother cried. But the baby grew, although it wasn't a very big baby. They named her Rosa, because the initial was the same as Raymond, but they always called her Rosalie. Then in a year another baby came, and that was a boy. In two years another, but Raymond never forgave his wife that first offense. He continued to struggle, trying various styles of pictures, and ever hoping he would yet hit on what the public desired. Mr. Vanderbilt had not yet made his famous remark about the public, and how could Raymond plagiarize it in advance? At last he got money enough to get to Paris. Ah, yes, Paris, Paris, where talent is appreciated. In Paris another baby was born. It was looked upon as a calamity. The poor little mother of the four shivering Bonheur ceased to struggle. She lay quite still, and they covered her face with a white sheet, and talked in whispers, and walked on tiptoe, for she was dead. When an artist cannot succeed, he begins to teach art. That is, he shows others how. Raymond Bonheur put his four children out among kinsmen in four different places, and became drawing-room master in a private school. 
Lisa Bonheur was ten years old, a pug-nosed, square-faced little girl in a linsey-woolsey dress, wooden shoes, with a yellow braid hanging down her back, tied with a shoestring. She could draw, all children can draw, and the first things children draw are animals. Her father had taught her a little and laughed at her foolish little lions and tigers, all duly labeled. When twelve years of age the good people with whom she lived said she must learn dressmaking. She should be an artist of the needle. But after some months she rebelled, and making her way across the city to where her father was, demanded that he should teach her drawing. Raymond Bonner hadn't much will. This controversy proved that. The child mastered and the father, who really was an accomplished draftsman, began giving daily lessons to the girl. Soon they worked together in the Louvre, copying pictures. It was a queer thing to teach a girl art. There were no women artists then. People laughed to see a little girl with yellow braid mixing paints and helping her father in the Louvre. Others said it wasn't right. Let's cut off that braid, and I'll wear boys' clothes and be a boy, said funny little Rosalie. Next day, Raymond Bonheur had a close-cropped boy in loose trousers and blue blouses to help him. The pictures they copied began to sell. Buyers said the work was strong and true. Prosperity came that way, and Raymond Bonheur got his four children together and rented three rooms in a house at 157 Faubourg saint honore Rosalie saw that her father had always tried to please the public. She would please no one but herself. He tried many forms. She would stick to one. She would paint animals and nothing else. When eighteen years old, she painted a picture of rabbits for the salon. The next year she tried again. She made the acquaintance of an honest old farmer at Villiers and went to live in his household. She painted pictures of all the livestock he possessed, from rabbits to a Norman stallion. One of the pictures she then made was that of a favorite Holland cow. A collector came down from Paris and offered three hundred francs for the picture. Merciful Jesus, said the pious farmer, say nothing but get the money quick. The live cow herself isn't worth half that. The members of the Bonheur family married, one by one, including the father. Rosa did not marry. She painted. She discarded all teachers, all schools. She did not listen to the suggestions of patrons, and even refused to make pictures to order. And be it said to her credit, she never has allowed a buyer to dictate the subject. She followed her own ideas in everything. She wore men's clothes, and does even on to this day. When she was twenty-five, the Salon awarded her a gold medal. The Minister des Arts paid her three thousand francs for La Bourge Minervis. Raymond Barnard grew ill in 1849, but before he passed out, he realized that his daughter, then twenty-seven years old, was on a level with the greatest masters, living or dead. She began the horse fair when twenty-eight. It was the largest canvas ever attempted by an animal painter. It was exhibited in the Salon in 1853, and all the gabble of jealous competitors were lost in the glorious admiration it excited. It became the rage of Paris. All the honors the Salon could bestow were heaped upon the young woman, and by special decision all her work, henceforth, was declared exempt from examination by the jury of admission. Rosa Bonner, five feet four, weighing one hundred twenty pounds, was bigger than the Salon. But success did not cause her to swerve a hair's breadth from her manner of work or life. She refused all social invitations, and worked away after her own method as industriously as ever. When a picture was completed, she set her price on it and it was sold. In 1860, she bought this fine old house at B, that she might work in quiet. Society tried to follow her, and in 1864, the Emperor Napoleon and Empress Eugene went to B, and the Empress pinned to the blue blouse of Rosa Bonheur, 
the cross of the legion of honor the first time i believe that the distinction was ever conferred on a woman and now at seventy-four she is still in love with life and while taking a woman's tender interest in all sweet and gentle things has yet an imagination that in its strength and boldness is splendidly masculine rosa bonner has received all the honors that man can give she is rich no words of praise that tongue can utter can add to her fame and she is loved by all who know her end of section twelve rosa barnow part two